My research focus is primarily on aquatic ecotoxicology, so thinking about toxicology, but also integrating ecology into our work and into our research. And one of my focus is now on micro and nanoplastics in addition to other contaminants of emerging concern and, and their effects mostly on coastal organisms, but we also do a little bit of work in, in freshwater and other environmental matrices too. So we research microplastics on two different fronts. On one front, we're looking at occurrence, and so we're interested in where microplastics are ending up, how much is ending up in different compartments, different ecosystems, different types of biota or sample types. Uh, we've even started looking at biosolids to try to better understand the fate of microplastics in wastewater treatment and then how those plastics are, are then getting kind of reapplied and reintroduced to the environment. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Suzanne Brander. She's an associate professor at Oregon State University, a part of the Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences Department, uh, also part of the Coastal Oregon Marine Experiment Station, and uh, the Environmental and Molecular Toxicology Department as an adjunct professor as well. So we're going to talk about uh, pollutants such as nanoplastics, and pesticides, and uh, how they affect the aquatic ecosystem. So Suzanne, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background, and then we'll go into your research right now. Sure. Well, I have a master's in environmental science and policy from, from Johns Hopkins University, and then I went on to do a PhD in toxicology and pharmacology at the University of California, Davis. After that, I worked as faculty for a while at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and now I'm here at Oregon State University. I've been here for about the past five and a half or so years. My research focus is primarily on aquatic ecotoxicology, so thinking about toxicology, but also integrating um, ecology into, into our work and into our research. And one of my, one of my focuses is now on micro and um, nanoplastics in addition to other contaminants of emerging concern and, and their effects mostly on coastal organisms, but we also do a little bit of work in, in freshwater and other environmental matrices too. Okay. So what are some of the current research questions you're working on surrounding uh, plastics? Sure. So, so we research microplastics on two different fronts. On one front, we're looking at occurrence. And so we're interested in where microplastics are ending up, how much is, is ending up in, in different compartments, different, different ecosystems, different types of biota or sample types. Uh, we've even started looking at biosolids to try to better understand the fate of microplastics in wastewater treatment and then how those plastics are, are then getting kind of reapplied and reintroduced to, to the environment. So, so we do a lot. We our freezers are are full of samples of all different sorts, from fish to zooplankton to to water samples and and what have you. And then on the other side of the coin, we're looking at effects of exposure. And so this is where we do targeted experiments in the lab that we try to base on what we see in the field in our samples, but. We look at how larval fish and juvenile invertebrates, so really tiny organisms, just a couple of millimeters in length, how they are responding to exposure to microfibers and microplastics like tire particles, for example. Does it, does it affect their growth? Does it affect their behavior? Does it cause them to undergo stress that we can measure um, by looking at cellular responses or gene expression? So the, those are the kinds of questions we answer in the lab, but we really try to link 
the work on those two different fronts. So what we find in the field in our field samples is what we try to test in, in our laboratory experiment. What, what kind of uh, microplastics and nanoplastics are you finding in the, you know, the coastal waters near you? Yeah, and how did you, you know, how have they been found? Sure, that's a really good question. Primarily what we're finding in our samples are microfibers. Uh, microfibers of all different types. Uh, they're mostly, we think they're mostly coming from wastewater treatment, although it's hard to trace them back to the exact source, but we're finding a lot of human modified cellulose. And so that would be something that would come from your t-shirt or your cotton blue jeans. But then we also find a lot of polyester and other types of synthetic fibers that are coming from clothing as well. We think some of the fibers we're finding are also coming from fishing gear. So from ropes that are used uh, to tie down crab pots or from nets that are sometimes made of polypropylene or, or other synthetic, synthetic polymers. Uh, so we find a variety of different, it's mostly fibers, I would say, Upwards of 75% of what we find in fish, in invertebrates, in zooplankton, we've even looked at otter scat. And I have a student who's looking at elephant seal scat, water samples, we mostly find microfibers. We haven't done a lot of work on sediments where uh, we might find more variety in the, in the types of microplastics that we're, we're seeing, but, but mostly what we're seeing so far are microfibers. We see suspected tire particles every once in a while, but those are not common in, in the samples that we're looking at off the coast of Oregon, at least not, not that we've run into yet. Um, in terms of nanoplastics, we don't really have, or most labs don't really have the technology to go down to that size at this point. So we're able to look at particles that are above about 20 microns in size in any in any dimension. But once you get down below that, it gets a bit difficult to, to detect those, those smaller particles. So we're probably underestimating. Yeah. Where are you finding them? In fish or free floating in the water or in like the, the substrate on the bottom of the, you know, the ocean? So so I would the first two are what we're focusing on. So we're looking at fish, we've looked at little zooplankton, so copepods and shrimp that are prey of organisms like gray whales and salmonids. And then we also find fibers in water uh, water samples as well. So we, we had a paper come out last year where we collaborated with the Seattle Aquarium, and they were looking at water that was coming into their facility. And we mostly found fibers in, in, that, in that water as well. We, we haven't done a lot of work on sediments yet. That's, that's planned for, for the near future, but, um, but that's not what we've been focusing on thus far. You know, because of the tides and the waves, does it make sense to sample very closely, like right near the shore and then maybe, you know, five feet in and 20 feet in and 50 feet out, you know, just a couple of samples in the, in the ocean water. It's so, is it so well mixed that you're probably seeing what's representative of, of what's in the ocean at various spots? Yeah, that, that's a good question. We do less sampling wa in water than we do in biota, but I think a really good example that shows how well mixed some of these particle types are is a study we are going to have coming out in a couple of weeks on rockfish. We, we sampled rockfish near marine protected areas off the coast at two different life stages. So we looked at adults and we looked at, at juveniles and across all of those life stages and field sites. So we looked at five or six different field sites off the coast of, of Oregon and, and really pretty, pretty remote sites. We found that the fiber exposure was equivalent between most of those sites. I mean, there was, there was a little bit of an increase in areas that were near the Columbia River, which comes through Portland and Vancouver before it dumps out into the Pacific. But we we found pretty equivalent numbers of fibers and microplastics in general in fish sampled from all of those sites. So I think that really speaks to how widely distributed microplastics and microparticles are, and that a lot of this is probably driven more by currents and by atmospheric circulation than by point source, point sources. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So when you say fibers, is this coming from people's clothing or are there other large sources of fibers? Like where would they come from? Yeah. So, so like, like I was mentioning before, we do think that a lot of it is coming from laundry and we're not, you know, we're definitely not the first lab to discover fibers everywhere, but um, we, we think they're coming from, from laundry. So that could be coming from two different sources could be coming from treated wastewater effluent, so from outfalls that are coming into areas near the sites we're sampling, or it could also be coming from biosolids. So biosolids are sterilized sludge from wastewater treatment plants that is then taken after it's treated and used as fertilizer on agricultural fields. And so we know that there are some sites near the coast of Oregon where biosolids are being applied, and it's possible that plastics and fibers from those solids could be resuspended with storms, with, with rain, with rain events. And then, you know, lastly, of course, is just from global circulation from that you could have fibers coming from, from far off places. I mean, there have been studies that have shown almost just as many microplastics being found in a remote, you know, mountain area you know, and, and comparing that to say like the city of Paris or, or somewhere that's really very highly populated. And so these are just really widely dispersed and ubiquitous. I think no matter where you look, whether it's somewhere close to where humans are, are, are you know, highly populated or, or somewhere far off um, that's more remote. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's mostly coming from our, from our laundry and also maybe from fishing equipment as well from fishing ropes. Um, I would think that in wastewater treatment, you know, they do flocculation uh, would fibers be amenable to being balled up by flocculation? Or, you know, if, if they get into the ocean, is wave action or other types of things going on in the ocean, um, does it make the fibers, again, like coagulate and ball up, or are they free-floating? Our, in our experience, they're free-floating, and they're occurring in, you know, just single-fiber form. We we sometimes find bumbles, bundles so uh, fibers kind of entwined with one another, and maybe that is a result of treatment in, in wastewater plants. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but we're, we're mostly finding single fibers in, in say the guts of a fish or in the fillet of a fish or in our, in our water samples that we grab from, from near the surface. It's mostly, mostly single fibers. Hmm, okay. Um, and then I, I don't know, there's maybe a weird comparison, but the length and the morphology of the fibers do they resemble fibers that have been found, let's say, from taking them off clothing natively? You know, let's say I have like, I don't know, a pair of blue jeans or a sweater, and I pull some fibers off and analyze them and compare them, you know, in the microscope to the stuff you guys find. Like how different are the fibers you're finding? How degraded are they? Yeah, they're, they're a little bit degraded, but you'd be surprised at how intact some of these fibers are, even if they've been pulled from, say, the gut of a rockfish. And they are similar. You know, we, we actually... When I, when I train my students, we, we use Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy to identify these fibers to material types. So we can take a fiber and tell you whether it's cotton or wool or linen or polyester or polypropylene or what have you. And the way um, we train new, new students using this instrument is I just grab some lint from my dryer at home and separate out some of those fibers and they practice on those fibers from, from my actual laundry from home. So, and you really, it would be hard to tell the difference between a fiber that shed from your clothing while you were conducting the analysis and a fiber that came from one of these samples. And so for that reason, we have to be really careful about how clean we keep the spaces that we work in so our, our microplastics clean room has HEPA filtration in the entire room. And then 
work is only done under these laminar flow hoods that have a second HEPA filter inside the flow hood. Everyone has to wear cotton lab coats that are all dyed bright orange in case they shed any fibers so we know where they came from. So we because there's such a challenge with identifying what's coming from our clothing just being shed during our work in the room and the samples coming from our from our organisms or from our samples, we know that those fibers look look very much, very much the same. It's why we have to be so why every lab that works with microfibers has to be so careful about background contamination. Hmm. Yeah, so then that's a great very much. So even are the dyes preserved, the colorants preserved as well? Like what what do you see degrades in the fibers of anything? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we haven't done a degradation study in our group. We're mostly looking at occurrence. And then when we create fibers in the lab, we are looking at relatively newly created fibers and we rinse them and we have plans to do some uh, degradation in like a solar simulator, but we don't really have a good way of, of degrading them to the same extent they would be in the environment. It's it, it's a really good question. And I do wonder if some colors are more easily degraded than others, because we find in our samples from the field, mostly blue and black fibers. And that could be for two reasons. It could be because more clothing is blue and black than than all of the other colors we might we might see, or it could also be because brighter colors tend to be degraded and we're not seeing those colors as often also because of of degradation. But but we haven't actually done those studies yet in in my lab. Is there any way to to tell the the age of the fibers, how long they've been separated from? The initial garment? Not that I am aware of currently. There's not a way to say carbon date those fibers. Um, the only way you'd be able to do that is by looking at, say, a time series of samples or by looking if, say, you were doing sediment cores and you were aging those cores by, by depth. I do have a student who is looking at fish from uh, their, their museum specimens and she's looking at mctophids, and she's able to get mctophids dating back all the way to the 1960s to present day. And so it'll be interesting to see what she finds in those samples across all of those decades in terms of fiber type and also, you know, the degradation and appearance of those fibers based on the age of, of the samples. But yeah, we don't have a way of aging the fibers necessarily that we're that we're getting from from our field samples well do you, do you think it would be um you know let's say like from your dryer at home you know what if you turn it into a little science experiment so like when the clothes first go in there they're pretty damp and as they dry the you know the moisture content goes down until they're done so what if you looked at the uh, the lint trap and took samples out of it you know in the first five minutes and then the next 20 minutes and then right near the end of the drying and see what you get in the lint trap because that might tell you like, wow, even when these these clothes are really wet, that they still shed fibers, or maybe most of the shedding occurs at the very end once they dry out. Mm -hmm. And then if you correlate that to what you see in the ocean, I don't know, maybe that would tell you something. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. And that that's a little bit more on the fate side and analytical side than we than we tend to focus. A lot of our focus has been more on the occurrence and biological effects. So how how many fibers per milliliter do you need to induce a response like reduced growth or altered behavior or a change in gene expression in a fish or or a shrimp that that's exposed in the lab. But yeah, that that would be interesting to get an idea of what um, in terms of transport, if there's a difference between those different time points. And then it also would give, give it, maybe give us some information about how to control the amount of fibers that are being output from from homes um, in in the first place because that's I think that's really where we need to start in terms of thinking about mitigation is better filtration on washing machines and dryers at, in in people's homes and in laundromat facilities just you know that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit right now for for keeping these keeping these particles out of our out of our waterways and our, our atmosphere. Well, you, you took your own dryer lint, which is great. But what about uh, the effluent from your washing machine? You know, would it be useful to do a quick 
comparison because again, then the clothes are in a agitated but very very wet state, and mm-hmm. if there's like a, an equivalent amount of fibers than you'd that you'd see in the lint, you know, I don't know, maybe that would tell you something. Or if there's radically reduced, maybe that would tell you something about the fate of the fibers once sure. they're in a body of water. I mean, sure, yeah, that's that's definitely something we could think about. Yeah, just trying to get a handle on what's out there first. And and I think this also points to the the newness of this this field and and really the this idea of microfibers being such a, a huge player when it comes to microplastic and microparticle contamination. Even even that idea is relatively new, even as recently as five to eight years ago, most studies you would see being published were only on commercially available particles that you could buy from a scientific supplier, you know, polystyrene spheres or polyethylene spheres that look nothing like the particles that are actually out in the environment. So yeah, I agree. The, the ideas that you're, you're posing for looking at how exactly these particles are breaking down in our washers and dryers is, is another, you know, it's another area we need to investigate so we can understand, better understand um, the fate and transport of these of these fibers. When you sample uh, seawater or the tissue of various fish, are you able to, de- to determine a density of the fibers, for instance, or the other microplastics? Like, you know, how much per unit volume? Sure. So, yeah, we're able we're able to determine how much per unit volume and the density is of these fabrics is is usually already known and and we know that that can influence their um, their bioavailability to organisms. So a, a good example is a study we recently did looking at cotton fibers in comparison to polyester and polypropylene fibers. And this, this study is going to be out hopefully next week in Frontiers in Marine Science. And we were finding that the cotton was not being ingested as much as the synthetic fiber types and are wondering whether that might be because the cotton is more dense than the polyester and polypropylene fibers. And so it might be sinking out of our beakers that we're exposing the animals in faster. And so it's not as, as readily available to animals that are feeding in, in the water column. And this might also translate to what's happening environment as well. But, but yeah, so we do think about the density and how that's influenced by fabric type and also by the salinity of the water, which is going to change um, how long things are things remain in suspension. It's true of tire particles too. Well, when you look at uh, fish, there are certain places where the fibers aggregate or get caught. You know, like, a, I don't know, do they get caught in certain glands of the fish or they uniformly distributed throughout its tissues? Usually we find that they stay in the digestive tract if it's a fish that we've exposed in the lab and we know exactly when it's been exposed and how much it's been exposed to. We can see that they we can track them moving through the digestive tract and it, and it usually takes maybe 48 um, to 72 hours for them to excrete those fibers. But with samples that we're getting from the wild, we find fibers in distributed throughout throughout the throughout the organisms so they're because fibers are so narrow in the one dimension they are able to translocate and so in a study we finished up recently we found fibers even in the fillets of fish so that that's been a big question for a while everyone's been looking in the gut and now we're we're looking in edible tissues of fish and finding fibers and other particles there too. But but I wouldn't say there's one place where they aggregate necessarily. Um, fibers, if they're if they're narrow enough, they're able to move around within within the organism or or even within us. Um, toxic toxicologically, or from that standpoint, what do you see in fish that have uh, you know significant fibers inside them and other microplastics? Yeah, we we've done a few studies where we've consistently seen effects on growth, especially if fish or um, shrimp, the shrimp that we work with are, it's a mycid shrimp, which is an, uh, it's an environmental protection agency species that's used for monitoring. Uh, We see there are consistently effects on growth. And this is, this seems to be specific to animals that are fed these particles within a few days of hatching. 
And so this early, this idea of early life sensitivity might really be important. And especially with the fish, which are really only a couple of millimeters long when they hatch out, but they start immediately feeding um, on particles, they are, are potentially going to be predisposed to slower growth and higher risk of predation going forward. So in the wild, that could be a huge concern. We also see changes in behavior, which seems like it's something that would be really subtle and maybe not that impactful. But if you think about the low, low chances of surviving, if you're a larval fish out in an estuary and how easy, easily it is for you to be you know, eaten by something larger or, or, you know, the, the challenges of finding food, small changes in behavior, like changes in swimming speed or direction, or even changes in uh, the, how quickly an animal can move away from an obstacle can really change their ability to survive in the wild. And so we see that too. And then lastly, like, like many other labs have seen, we see changes in reactive oxygen species and that means basically that the cells of the organism that um, is being exposed to that microplastic or microfiber, they're under stress and they're producing reactive oxygen species that indicate that that stress response or at least uh, a response to this exposure. And they're trying to re-equilibrate and reach homeostasis. So, so a sign that they are, they are responding to that, the presence of that, of that particle. We see that as well. What about microbiome changes in the gut in and around, let's say if there's fiber clusters or plastic clusters, has anyone profiled like, you know, empty guts versus guts full of fibers or plastics? What's the difference? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And that's been challenging to look at in the small fish that we study, but we did just complete a study late last year. And this was a collaboration between us and some some folks in environmental and molecular toxicology here, as well as Texas A&M University. And we were feeding particles to mice and they were being exposed in drinking water. And these were commercially sourced particles. But what we found was that just after about 24 hours of exposure, you did start to see changes in the diversity of the microbiome of these of these mice who basically collected fecal pellets and compared the microplastic exposed mice to um, to controls and saw that there was a different there's that at least the beginning of a difference in the diversity of those microbes that were occupying the gut of the plastic exposed mice. So more more work needs to be done, but it was we were a little bit surprised to see a change that quickly, but we did we did see an impact on the microbiome. So that's a really good question. The microbiome is so influential in so many aspects of health. The think the thought that this continual exposure to microplastics might be yet you know another stressor altering that microbiome is is really concerning. Is anyone looking at any longitudinal effects? You know, let's say you have fish again with a significant microplastics load, and you breed them. You know, I don't know how long it'll take to produce offspring, but um, Maybe that's longitudinal enough to see if this, uh, you know, the negative effects are affecting their offspring or a pass down. Yeah, we we haven't done any more multi-generational or epigenetic studies using plastic particles. We have done those studies with endocrine disrupting compounds, um, which is another area of research uh, for my group. And we've seen effects of endocrine disrupting compounds, which are often associated with plastics um, across, across several generations. And I know there have been some studies done in invertebrates by other labs. There have been studies done in Daphnia, where I think they've seen multi-generational effects of plastic particles. I want to say there's been a study or two done in fish as well. So it's, some, it's something that I, I would love to to take a look at. It's just those, those studies take, take some commitment and, and quite a bit of resources. Cause often, at least with fish in particular, you're looking at two or three years of work to get, to get to the, you know, F2 or F3 generation, um, in a study like, but yeah, a really good question. Okay. Um, what, what are some of the, uh, the experimentation that you're doing now? Like what particular questions are you trying to answer? Yeah, that's, so really interested in looking more at microfibers because what we're finding with the species we we do work do our experimental work with 
is that they seem to be more sensitive to the microfibers than they do to the particles, um, even, even to tire particles, which um, some studies in, in salmonids, for example, have found really high toxicity. But the microfibers, at least for our purposes, they seem to be more toxic. They seem to cause changes in growth and changes in behavior at lower concentrations. So focusing more on that, and, and also because they're so commonly found in, in our samples too. And then we're interested in pairing that with what's happening with in terms of climate change. So no, no fish or crab is going to be exposed to microplastics alone. It's not, not happening, happening in a vacuum. So we're also looking at uh, how they're responding at higher temperatures or at lower oxygen concentrations since hypoxia. Uh, loss of loss of oxygen from the water is such a concern here, especially off the, the coast of Oregon. So thinking about how climate change related factors influence responses to microplastics and also thinking about in collaboration with um, other faculty that I work with, thinking about multiple stressors and how exposure to climate change related factors and plastic and increased concentrations of soluble chemicals are all kind of interacting with one another to cause um, to cause stress, cumulative stress. Okay. I know you said you haven't done much work with the sediment. Um, mm -hmm. Is it is it just because you can't do everything or did initial <laughs> sampling show that there's not much going on or what's the reason? It's, I would say it's more that one lab can't do everything. And there are definitely labs doing really great work on sediment and we're we're planning on adding that to kind of our repertoire in the in the coming coming year or so with some collaborative work but but yeah it's more that just one group can't do everything and you you have your your niche and and ours happens to be thinking more about what's happening in the water column and what's happening with early life stages of of fish and inverts uh we we have branched out a bit like i was saying earlier we're now looking at biosolids. And so we have a collaboration with a faculty member in the Department of Engineering here, and we're getting samples from wastewater treatment plant, both the effluent and the biosolids. And we're looking at fiber occurrence, plastic occurrence in those in those samples. So we I feel like we've branched out a little bit beyond the aquatic toxicology when it comes to that project. Um, but it but it'll all circle back to thinking about how what we're finding in those different matrices might be eventually becoming resuspended and impacting aquatic organisms. So, so yeah, so one, one lab definitely can't do everything. I wish we could, but there's yeah. only so much time and, and so much funding. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So I, I guess it'd be really interesting. You mentioned um, looking at uh, what historically was in the guts of, of fish, I believe, from the 60s. Can you re-describe that, that experimentation you want to do? Yeah, absolutely. So a graduate student in fisheries who works with me is looking at a, a species of fish called a mctophid. They're also referred to as lanternfish. And these are fish that live off the, the coast of, um, of North America, the west coast of North America. And they do this daily migration from surface to depth. And so she's really interested in thinking about how they might be transporting microplastics between the surface of the water and, and deeper, deeper areas of the water. And then also interested in how their exposure to particles has changed over time. And so the nice thing about lanternfish is that they're easy to obtain from museum collections if, if you have the right connections, uh, which we're lucky to have here at, at OSU with, with collaborators. And so she's going to be able to look across a, a time course. Um, so she's basically taking mctophids from these different museum collections and kind of pulling them into five-year groupings. And then she's looking at ingestion of plastics across basically from 1960 to 20. I think she has samples that are even as recent as 2020. So it'll be really interesting to see what she finds in terms of magnitude of exposure and also just types of plastics since we'll be able to to identify um, those plastics across across that time period as well yeah no that'll be really interesting mm -hmm. hmm. but what are i mean 
even if you're not researching it in particular, are there any questions out there that, you know, you're, you're eagerly looking in publications for the answers to hoping that, you know, some other lab will, will get it done for you to help your research <laughs> right. or understanding. And, and I would say that the nice thing about the microplastics field is it, it feels highly collaborative and it, it doesn't, you know, it is the case where a lot of times you're, you're hoping that you'll either find the right collaborator, or you'll find another group has already answered one of the questions for you since you're, there are just so many unanswered questions having to do with micro and nanoplastics at, at the moment. Something that has been on my mind a lot is the increased use of quote unquote bioplastics. I say quote unquote because it's it's unclear how biologically you know friendly and how compostable uh, they actually are. There's been a huge surge in the use of polylactic acid plastics in the U.S. I don't know if you've, you've probably had a cup that said PLA on it with a big green logo and. Yeah, and, and it's are, not the People's Liberation Army. So. <laughs> no, it's not the People's Liberation Army. At least I hope not. Um, but they are claimed often to be compostable, but then in the fine print, you'll see only at industrial facilities or only at facility if the if certain facility types are available near you, and and often that's not the case. And so these plastics are being mistakenly tossed into recycling bins or into home compost. And they're not breaking down in the way that they should and are kind of contaminating our waste stream because we don't have a good way to deal with them uh, nationwide or, or globally even yet. And so we've been doing some studies comparing responses to some of these bioplastics with more traditional plastics in the lab. And, and so far, we're seeing that they both cause stress and they both cause, you know, changes in behavior and sometimes changes in growth. And so they're there doesn't, it, it, there, there's not a clear cut solution here. You know, it, should we, should we be moving towards more quote unquote environmentally friendly plastics or should we just be reducing plastic use entirely? It, it seems like maybe we're, we might be veering off into, into the wrong direction if we're going to be just making all of the single use plastics we already make with traditional plastics now with these bioplastics that also kind of come with their own their own set of challenges. What's the macroplastic situation? You know, if you're going to harvest fish, does anyone look first and, or sediment? You know, is there any visible, visible plastic nearby? And has anyone correlated the level of microplastics, either in fish or water or sediment, with the amount of macroplastics that are around them? Yeah, that, that's not something that we've really done because our focus has been more on the micro and even the nano in the lab. But I, I believe that there have been studies done showing that correlation, that if, if you see more macroplastics, you're going to see more microplastics nearby, particularly, you know, fragments that come directly from those, from those macroplastics. But a lot of what we're seeing is more from sites that aren't directly exposed. You know, we're not going out there to the great Pacific garbage patch and grabbing fish. We're grabbing fish. We're more interested in kind of what the what the typical exposure is, you know, not necessarily what the extreme exposure is. Well, I just wonder the profile of um, I guess for fibers, again, oh bless you, right out of the gate, they're they're fibers and they're they don't seem to be degrading very much when they get into no. you know various environments. But other microplastics, um, like which ones are you finding in what abundance that they couldn't have gotten there too quickly? It would have taken a long time for them to get to that stage. I mean, it's we're not able to age the plastics, so it's hard to know how long it's taken them to get to a particular point. So that's that's I don't know that that's a question I can necessarily answer. But I think if you're sampling an area that's relatively remote, like some of the marine protected areas we were sampling rockfish near. Uh, and you, you can assume that some of those plastics are, you know, 5, 10, 20 years old at the point that you're finding them in the fish or finding them in, in the water, I would say. It's it's hard to know exactly, but but they're but they're not fresh from they're not fresh from the tap. They're not coming right from being shed from a, a brand new cup. They're, they're mostly weathered and, and aged. Okay. All right. No problem. 
Oh, so what what do you think is going to be possible in terms of understandings surrounding microplastics in the next, like, I don't know, five years, maybe even 10 years? And what do you think is going to be a long time so anyone understands? Sure. Um, I think that we are pretty soon, at least I hope, that we're pretty soon going to be able to decrease the size limit, the, the limit of detection in terms of size. And that I'm, I'm hoping that in the near future, we'll be able to detect nanoplastics in environmental samples. Because right now, really the cutoff for the instrumentation that most laboratories have is one micron. And for a lot of laboratories like ours, it's, it's more around 20 microns. And so we are truly underestimating the amount of plastic out there in in my thinking and and that's because we're only able to go down to those kind of restricted sizes at this point so i think someone's going to come up with an instrument that lets you detect particles that are 500 or 50 nanometers in size or even even smaller at my my hope is um because now we can we can create those particles in the lab and look at their effects or you can buy them from a supplier but you can't find them easily in the environment. And then in terms of what it's going to take us a long time to solve, I mean, I, I think we already have enough information to know that this is a, a huge environmental challenge and a huge human health challenge and that we need to reduce the amount of plastic that we're using on a daily basis. But that the biggest challenge is going to be to put that in motion globally and uh, there's currently a, a treaty in being discussed um, at the UN, and they've had two meetings about it so far. There's another one in May of this year in Paris, and they're trying to put together a global treaty um, to reduce plastic pollution and impacts from plastic. But you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, but also think it's going to take a while for that to be implemented and for us to truly reduce our reliance worldwide. You know, a, a good example is I, I've had to fly a bit more um, often over the past few months than I have in a while because of the, the pandemic. And so I've, I've been on airplanes more often the past couple of months and just it, the difficulty of even getting your thermos filled with black coffee at, at an airport instead of them having to give you a plastic lined cup. Like just like little, little things like that are so difficult. And I just can't imagine trying to, the, the task of trying to reduce usage globally is, is going to take a, a really concerted and serious effort over, over a number of years. Um, and I, I hope we start soon because we need to. Well, is anyone looking at the fate of various commonly used plastics in the environment? How fast are they degrading? You know, how many microplastics are they creating, like polyethylene versus polypropylene versus, you know, something else? Um, does one create a lot more microplastics than another? You know, is anyone looking at the, uh, you know, the timelines of how they degrade again and how much they produce? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Some of the timelines are pretty well known. For example, for a PVC pipe, that can take up to, you know, a thousand years to fully degrade. Um, there's also what does that mean by the way fully degrade I mean just does not, that mean like the whole thing turns into microplastics or the whole thing turns into like harmless nothings or what, what does that mean I, I think it basically means that it turns into something you can no longer find I think saying that it's disappeared would be difficult to say I, I think that most of the of the plastics we've made since the early 1900s are, are still probably in existence somewhere in some form, even if it's in nano or, or even smaller form. But the estimate, my understanding is that it's, that's the estimate of how long it would take for it to no longer be visible or detectable in, in the environment. And that's not the focus of our lab's work, but I know there have been studies done where people have put different types of plastic sheeting, you know, for example, into the ocean and looked at the amount of time it takes for each of those plastic types to degrade. I've done comparisons between traditional plastics versus bioplastics and have found that, you know, there's not really, um, there, there's no magic bullet. There's no plastic that's going to break down over a few weeks. And the concern about bioplastics is that because they do break down a little bit faster than traditional plastics, 
they're actually creating micro and nanoparticles more quickly than a traditional plastic would. And so is that better? Maybe it's better that it's breaking down faster, but it's creating those smaller particles that can be toxic more quickly. And so you can say there's there's not really there's not really a silver bullet there in terms of plastic. And we're probably better off using materials that don't break down into into increasingly smaller pieces like metals or glass, um, for example. Yeah, I was also thinking of like a you know a plastic soda bottle versus a shirt. You know, uh, will a shirt produce, I don't know, 10,000 fibers, but a plastic soda bottle will produce like, you know, 5 billion plus microplastics, you know, which one creates much more of an abundance of micro nanoplastics versus the other on what time frame? you know, maybe therefore you could do like an 80, 20 analysis and say, okay, we need to reduce plastics that people are using. And the ones that break up into the most pieces are these kind of plastics. So therefore we should focus on those because the other ones don't seem to have as much of a, an effect. Right. I mean, and that's definitely one angle you could take. And then the other angle, which might get us to, to a better place faster is just by eliminating those single use particle, single use plastics like soda bottles that we don't necessarily need to keep producing, that we can find other alternatives. We can use cans, we can use glass bottles that are more, both more easily recyclable and more commonly recycled than than plastic, for example, because the I'm I'm just thinking of the amount of time, and there is some some of this is known already, but the amount of time it would take to estimate the number of particles generated from each of those items would be pretty pretty substantial. And I I, I feel like the yeah, and then and, yeah. and then if you let's say you uh, I don't know you recycle a certain kind of plastic bottle, maybe now the recycled form is a lot more friable. And before it would be like, I don't know, I'm just again, making these numbers up uh, per cubic centimeter, you know, a thousand microplastics would have been liberated. But now with this new recycled form, it's 10,000 per cubic centimeter. So it's far worse. And even though it's recycled, it has these, you know, like highly negative effects. Again, I'm just making this up, but hopefully these horrible trade-offs are not there. They probably are though. Well, the, the other concern about recycling, which we haven't talked about yet, is it's not just that the particles being generated from bottles that aren't recycled properly, but it's all the chemicals that are used uh, in the production of those plastics. And right now there's you know upwards of 10,000 different chemicals estimated to be used in, in plastic production. That's probably an underestimate. And so many of those aren't really regulated because it's it's not possible to it's not possible for regulatory agencies to act quickly enough since hundreds of new chemicals are produced every year and when you think about recycling you're melting down plastics and creating new items and in the process you are also creating new mixtures of chemicals in those recycled items so it's it's not just about the particles it's also about all of the chemical constituents that are used in the production of these items that you really, you don't need to make a glass bottle, right? Yeah, that's true. And then when you find degraded, let's say plastic bottles, are you seeing more backbone polymer? Are you seeing all the additives, the plasticizers, you know, have they been leached out early, mm-hmm. et cetera? So, yeah, yeah. It just seems like a, a witch's brew of, it's like a nightmare. It's very hard okay. to figure this out. Yeah. A witch's brew is, is a really good, a really good description. And it's, it, in some ways, it's more of a concern for human health than it is for ingestion by a fish because a human is buying that plastic bottle new and is going to be probably exposed to more of those chemicals that have leached off immediately. Whereas a fish that's ingesting a piece of a plastic bottle that's been floating around for 10 years is less likely to be directly exposed to those same chemicals. Although it might be exposed to things that absorbed onto that piece of plastic um, while it's been floating around. So it's sort of it's 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 not good either way and then in terms of the fish just because those plus those chemicals have leached out doesn't mean they're not somewhere in the environment causing harm somewhere else or resort to sediment somewhere else so so that's that's really one of the 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 killer issues with plastics too is just the the chemical soup a lot of people refer to it as a chemical soup that needs to be used to bring them into creation yeah well, I was thinking about too, like a I don't know, a soda bottle. The pH of the soda is 
from what I've heard, I think Coke is like 5.3. So, and I wonder how much the pH, the lower pH would degrade the inside lining of a plastic bottle. And then when it's finally drank, how much are you drinking from the stuff that sloughs off the inside or even clothing? Like if I wear it and, you know, I sweat and all the stuff in my body goes onto the inside of the clothing, does that preferentially degrade the inside faster than the outside? And there's just, I guess, so much to know. Yeah. And and the thing about the, the plastic soda bottle is it's not just the chemicals leaching off, but also the small plastic particles that are that are breaking down uh, on the inside of the bottle, too. I mean, it, there was an estimate. I'm forgetting what the estimate was, but it was pretty alarming. There was a study done on baby bottles a couple of years back, and as they estimated the number of microplastic particles a typical infant was ingesting from a plastic bottle that had been, you know, sterilized with heat and then cooled over and over again. So yeah, it's yeah, just... we'll all have to wear like animal skins and uh, you know, <laughs> no. and breastfeed and stuff to avoid this. Yeah, hey. we, we definitely can't avoid everything, and it's it's easy to to start to feel really overwhelmed um, when you learn about all these issues. But but I do think there's there's a happy medium somewhere. You know, can we put filters on our washing machines and dryers and maybe wash our clothes a little bit less and you know, rely less on single-use plastic. We're always going to need some plastic. There are some medical devices that have to be plastic to, to work, but there there must be a way to make things a little bit more sustainable than they are currently. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, very good. This has been a really good uh, conversation. Um, where can people find out more about your work? Sure. So I've got a website, which I need to update, um, but it does have relatively current information on there. That's um, www.branderlab.net. And then I'm also on Twitter uh, at SMBrander. And our research group, which is the Pacific Northwest Consortium on Plastics, is also on Twitter. And that's at PNW Microplastic, Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Suzanne, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really good call. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me again. Have a great weekend. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.